Okay, um, hi, my name is Unji. Um, the scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Uh, yes, okay. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must, you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her offspring, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Um, so now I want to invite up Sean Radke, and pray for you. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing um, Sean here so that he could open our eyes with um, your message to us tonight. And I pray that as you speak through him, um, that you would be begging us to um, enter into an intimate relationship with you and to explore the blessings that you have for us. Um, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Any uh, One Republic fans out there? Well, there's more for all of you guys. Um, so that song begins with a really haunting question. Do you know where your heart is? Do you think you can find it? And I really, really like that song. I really like that question. I think it's a really, really relevant question. Um, and I think that this song is like an echo of a voice that we find back in Genesis, uh, the same voice that we heard read just a couple minutes ago. And it's the first question that God asks, asks human beings. And that question is, where are you? It's a relational question. It presupposes a lot. And it says a lot about the struggle of relationships that we experience and even our relationship with God. And 
these lyrics could be seen as a modern way of saying what God says back in Genesis 3. Do you know where your heart is? Do you think you can find it? And um, I think that this song in this text that we're going to look at tonight is also about what I might call a longing for shalom. And that might be a, a word a, a, a word that um, you might just, okay, peace, right? Hebrew. Um, great greeting. But it's actually a very, very rich word. And it, it's, it, it means to um, have experienced wholeness of life and for you to flourish in every way. There's not a, a great English equivalent of that Hebrew word. Um, abundant life. It's something that we're looking for. And I think that it's what he's talking about in this song when he says, all I need is the air I breathe and a place to rest my head. He's, he's kind of longing for this perfect world. It would be great if you had those things, if you felt like you actually got there. Um, but we don't. Um, often we don't feel that way, like we've arrived, like we've got there. And so there's this longing for shalom. And as we look back at the drama of redemption back in the beginning of Scripture in Genesis 3, uh, we're about to look at it together. And what we're going to find is that there is a God. And some of you might be asking that question tonight. Is there really a God? And I think it's, a, it's an important question. I'm, I'm glad that you're asking that question. Um, and what we're going to see is that there, there is a God and that he is relational. That's kind of the first core assumption that the scripture makes, that he um, is committed to relationships. Relationships require presence, don't they? They require time. Um, they require, um, I would say, honesty for them really to work. Um, but they also require a sense of compassion. And, you know, Some of us are better at the compassion side. Some of us are better at the honesty side. Some of us can really be honest with people and with them what we think um, about what they're struggling with or about what they should do. Um, and some of us are like, yeah, I really understand. I can empathize with you. I understand. And that's more of the compassion side. And you need both tracks. Um, God is a relational being, and what we're going to see is he actually gets that balance right perfectly, honesty and compassion. Um, he's the only being in the universe that, that can. And so relationships require those things. They're not neat. They're very, very messy, and we're going to see some of the mess exposed tonight of relationships. Um, and in the Christian kind of story of the world, relationships are what God does. It's in, a, in actuality, it's who he is in his essence. And God is actually revealed as, as triune. He's three in one. There's this plurality, but there's this unity. Don't ask me to fully explain that, by the way. That's a big, um, it's a big tripping stone for a lot of people out there that are trying to understand the Christian faith. How do you expect me to buy into a triune God? How is that supposed to make sense? Is God one or three? Make up your mind, right? Um, so you, you hear that objection sometimes. But so God is relational. That's the Christian story in his essence, in his being. It's three in one. And so whenever we go to this beginning of the story, we see that there's, there's this God, and he actually pursues people's hearts. Um, he, he pursues their hearts, and he wants to invite them into um, this, this kind of intimate relationship uh, with him. And that might be completely odd to you, or that might be so familiar to you that it doesn't have any force whatsoever, and you don't really feel anything. But I think scriptures invite us, as we look at this text tonight, they invite us not only to think correctly, but to actually feel correctly too. 
um, to have actually faithful feelings to respond the way that we're supposed to respond whenever we read this. And so um, we're going we're gonna to go there. So that's the first core assumption, that God is relational. The, the second thing is that the context or the place where um, the first relationships actually happen, where it all started was a garden. And it's this place of flourishing, goodness, abundance. There wasn't scarcity. There's beauty there. And so if I ask you, you know, think about a garden. that You know, what's the first garden that comes to your mind? Sarah B, right? Of course. Um, so if you, if you spend any time in that garden, you know that right at the center of it, uh, there's this quote. And some of you have read that quote before, maybe thought about it. It's this quote by Francis Bacon. It says this, God Almighty first planted a garden, and indeed it is the purest of human pleasures. How many of you have read that before, thought about that? It's interesting. Um, so in Genesis 2, human beings were placed in this safe sanctuary, this enclosed area, this garden. This, this was a place of God's presence. And God's presence was the purest of all human pleasures. And it's, it actually still is today. So there's a level of truth in that. So being in the presence of God um, is no longer confined to a garden, though, which we're actually going to get to. We're going we're to speak about that just a little bit. Um, humanity, we're free to roam about the garden. Like you're free to roam about the country according to, what is it, Southwest, right? Um, you're, you're free to roam about the garden. And um, there's this verse, Genesis 2.8, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. In biblical times, the east was this picture of life. The west was this picture of death, sunrise, sunset. Um, so God fashioned the first human out of dirt like a potter would with clay, and he put him in this place of abundance. And so what we find that there were these two trees. There was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that represented just kind of potentially unlimited knowledge, okay? No limits, no boundaries. And humanity wasn't to take of that fruit because um, that fruit could be understood as being moral experience. And I'm going to kind of go down for a minute. A moral experience, and what I mean by that is it's, it's kind of experience like being a student at Duke University. You actually, you, you, it leads to knowledge of it. You, you experience Duke and you know it. And so it would be silly to have somebody do student tours that has never experienced the university, who hasn't been a student here. Um, because, and you know, you... You didn't know Duke before you came here. As much as you read on the website or um, as much research as you did or as many people as you talked, you didn't know it until you experienced it. And it's this idea that um, experience leads to knowledge. And so if the couple, the first couple decides to experience disobedience, they will know evil. They'll get exposure to evil. And if they obey God, they'll experience his goodness. And then therefore they'll know what's good. So that's kind of counterintuitive because a lot of times we think we know and that will lead to experience. But it's actually... There's this reciprocal to both and. Experience leads to knowledge. Knowledge leads to experience. And God wants us to experience him. That leads to knowledge. And knowing God will lead to experiencing him. Um, so these, you've got to hold these two together. It's really, I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. Um, but that's what it means to know him, to actually experience him as real, in the present. Um, and so that's where we're going to go tonight. So like all of creation, they are made to flourish like this garden. They are, they are to listen to his voice. And so 
But in, instead of shalom, what we wound up with was what I, I love this phrase, vandalism of shalom. If shalom is abundant life, okay, flourishing wholeness, um, then what we, experience, what we see in Genesis 3 is vandalism of shalom. Um, it's, it's robbed. It's taken away. Um, I don't know if you've ever had um, any of your stuff vandalized before, um, but it's a real graphic kind of a violent type of thing to happen to you. And um, it's something that raises a lot of your tick when that happens to you. And so that's what we see going on here. And so tonight what I want to just kind of briefly do is I want to look at four things. I want to look at, I want to go back and uh, look at verses 1 to 6 in chapter 3, what I'm going to call the relational earthquake. Okay? And, and I'm, I'm obviously thinking about um, the imagery that you have been seeing um, the last few days uh, from Haiti. And that's not something I'm, I'm trying to make light of at all. In fact, I'm, I'm trying to help us to feel the force of, of how, of just total devastation with the first relationship that, that was meant to be right. And so relational earthquake. And then second, the, the, the four key relationships that were basically affected by that. You know, so there was this relational earthquake. There were aftershocks. There were effects that were felt that went out and that are still being felt today. So there's four key relationships there. So, and then the, the way that the relationship is rebuilt the way that the infrastructure of the relationship is rebuilt. And then, um, and then the fourth one, the, the, the big question, where are you? Where are you? So let's look at these a little bit. First of all, so um, in chapter 3, what you see quickly, I want to spend just a little bit of time here. Um, we see that, that there's this antagonist that enters the story. There's this crafty, cunning serpent. And he wasn't just this simple snake. He was actually controlled by an evil power. Um, this is what the narrator is trying to get us to see here. And so what we see is a few things. We see that he actually misquotes the authority, God, and we're going to see that he actually mocks. He, he, he mocks, and then he, he manipulates, okay? And these are things that um, oftentimes our sin, um, they lead to. Um, and so kind of distortion of truth, distortion of truth. And so first of all, um, in verse 2, if you turn there, um, you see, and okay, good, they're up here. Uh, let me read it from up here. Um, so he says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? If you look back in chapter 2, um, it's, that's a misquote. He, God did not say that. He got it wrong. What a coincidence, right? Um, not really. Uh, so the, the narrator here gives us some real subtle clues of things that are going on. You don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to recognize them, but you do have to kind of pay close attention. I think they're relevant for us, so I'm going to point a couple of things out. You see, um, he, never, he never refers to God as the Lord God. Lord is God's personal name, Yahweh, um, that he revealed himself in. So he revealed himself as a personal being. God is more of this um, term Elohim. It's more of a term that would be understood if you lived in biblical times. You understood that as being gods or God. And I'll tell you, um, the enemy, um, and again, a core assumption that he is real, and he is actually a personal being as well, he wants to make God seem very unrelational. Okay, He wants to remove his relationality from your life just like he did Adam and Eve's life. He never refers to him as Lord. It's not just a coincidence. He wants to make him distant, removed. From humanity, removed from your life, 
um, so that you know it's easy to look around and be like, look at Haiti and be like, God, where are you? You are so distant. And you know, there could be some. Um, there's a proper way to even ask that question. That could be a good question to ask. That's not necessarily a bad question to ask. God, where are you? I asked that question. What happened? How could you let that happen? Um, we see the psalmist praying that way many times, just being really honest. Um, okay, God, if you want to be relational, let's be relational. This is what I think about what you did. Um, but Satan is trying to remove this sense of relationality from God. I don't, he doesn't want you to think that he is whatsoever. Um, so that's this evil power behind the serpent at work. So he mocks him. He kind of says he's going to, he tries to basically call God's bluff. He says, did God really say? So he contradicts me. You, you will not surely die. So he's questioning his word. Questioning his word. Um, that's what we see here. And then... Um, he, he really does give them a half-truth. He, he says that their eyes will be opened, and their, their eyes eventually were opened. Um, they were open to their nakedness. And one of my mentors, pretty funny old guy, and he, he, he put it this way. He said, he said, the first couple wanted to be shrewd, but they ended up nude. I'm like, I love that. I love that. So, but it's true. So their eyes were open. All right? they, were, they were open to their own exposure, their own vulnerability. Um, and so... Then there's this sense of manipulation. And this is what we do, and this is what has been going on since the beginning, but there's this, there's this hunger for control. There's this power for control. You feel it in your own life, um, this desire to control your life. Um, and we try to control other people's lives. We see it here. Um, the serpent says the couple will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's really ironic because the, you know what the first thing that the Bible says about humanity is? You want to know who who am I really? You can always go back to this um, in the Christian story. The first thing the Bible says about humanity is we are the image of God. What does that mean? In a sentence, it means that God is saying to you, "Be like me. Be like me. Image me. Reflect me." And so it's the first thing. So get this: the serpent says you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. But we already are like him, right? So call your identity into question. You don't know who you are. Total identity crisis, confusion. Um, identity apart from the creator is what you have going on here underneath the surface. That's the subtext. I want you to build an identity, and I want, I want you to justify your own existence apart from a creator. Um, so um, so it, it's interesting that as, as the image bearers of God, they were actually given... Um, this responsibility, this stewardship, to actually have a real humble attitude towards creation and to actually um, to be good stewards of the created order that he's made, including servants. So it's interesting that, so what you have is you have this reversal of the created is becoming, is basically running the show, right? And they're going to they're gonna listen to the created thing that they're actually meant to have stewardship and some kind of responsibility over. Um, it's, it's just really ironic, very interesting. And so what we see is, so sin, suffering, pain enters into the story. We see the ripple effects of it even today. And it, break, it breaks my heart. I was sitting at Dunkin' Donuts of all places this morning with my wife and my son, and I thought I was going to start crying watching CNN. If I would have, and finally I was like, I, I, we need to leave, because I probably would have, and that would have been a, probably a good response. 
But I, it's just something really sad about sitting there eating a donut and watching that on the news. Um, and you know, there was is actually it was actually a story about some American college students. Um, you might have heard this story about family from Massachusetts or mistaken, mistaken identity. The parents thought that their daughter was um, located, and it ended up they and they said, "Yeah, we found her," and then it ended up not being her. Um, and I mean, it just it was horrible. It was just really heavy. Um, but this is this is life, and some of you I know have experienced some kind of incredible brokenness in your life and in your backstory. And what, what I think is really interesting is whenever we, we come to this text, we see um, this God who's saying, okay, um, you know, he, the, the, again, the first question is not, where have you been? The, the first question is not, uh, where are you going? But it's, where are you now? Where are you now? Um, he's big enough and powerful enough to deal with the backstory, to help you heal with healing, from whatever you've experienced, he's big enough and powerful enough to get you where you need to go in your life. And I, I think that you know the college experience is really, um, oftentimes it's it's dominated by this um, by this real. I love college students. I love college ministry, and I know that you know that it, this question of where am I going, um, and is is such a relevant question, an important question, and it's a good question. But I think we have to realize that that. Whenever you come to the God of the Scriptures, and in order to worship Him, to follow Him, He invites you into this reality, and to experience Him. And He's asking the question, "Where are you?" It's not so much where are you going; it's where are you now. It's about the present. Um, one of my favorite philosophers back in the 16th century, his name is Blaise Pascal, and he had a great insight. He said, "Most people live in the future; or they live in the past. Very few people know what it actually know what it means to live in the present." actually be here now. You know, you're always thinking about, okay, what do I have to get done when I get out of here? Um, what just happened? I can't believe, you know, it's, it's just, it's very hard to be present. It's very hard to be present. But he's the God who wants to be present with people where they are now. Where are you? So, um, as, as, so what we see is sin, suffering, pain enters into the story. God's asking the question, where are you? And look, um, there's this real self-justification that goes on, and this is something that I know of well in my life. Um, I know what it's like, you know, when my wife, you know, sometimes asks me, okay, uh, so why didn't you do the dishes? I thought I thought you were going to help me do those, and and I'm, you know, I think, look, I, I really, you know, or I'll say I'll say something, you know, well, I had a bad day, you know, I just need to relax. You know, the subtext there is I I I deserve to have a good day. To be, it's a great way of self-justifying sometimes. Um, our lives, we, we do that. You know, whenever you're stopped um, by a policeman for speeding, it's it's easy. It's a, hello, um, can we talk? Uh, you know, it's it's easy to self-justify. That's sometimes our first response that we have, isn't it? And uh, so we we find all these ways of justifying ourselves, and and so we see kind of the blame game going on here. And uh, you know, the man says, the woman, it's her fault. She gave it to me, right? So first, um, passive man. Not the last, the first of many. Um, some of you guys maybe you know step up and ask some of these ladies out for dates sometime. Don't be passive. Um, so, and I'm serious. Um, so, passivity is what we see. Um, loss of identity, and uh, so we still want to. 
we still try to create a perfect world. We want a perfect world without God. And so we, we settle for um, oftentimes many excuses, um, just like the first couple did. Let me give you some examples. I'm going to give you a statement we often say, and then just kind of like I said, um, I'm having a bad day, i.e. subtext, I deserve better. Um, let me give you some more. I was just being honest. Subtext, can't you handle the truth? Um, oh, I've misunderstood you. Subtext, you're not as crazy as I thought you were. I'm just saying what I feel, i.e., there's nothing wrong with my feelings. I was only kidding, i.e., didn't you get the joke? I made a mistake, i.e., don't we all? I didn't mean to do it, i.e., I didn't mean to get caught. We could go on and on, but we often struggle with self-justification. We want to be made, we want to find other ways to create a perfect world for ourselves. So it's this desire for control that we grasp for. Um, so what we see, and I'm going to go fast through these, number two, but four key relationships that became out of whack. When you look at verses 7 through 19, the first one is broken is this relationship with God. What is your purpose in life? Um, old um, catechism question are, that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That works. I can't, I can't improve on that. That's your purpose in life, to glorify him, not just glorify him, that's, but to enjoy him forever. Um, so we praise him through everything that we do. Um, and so alienation from God is symbolized by their hiding among the trees. Okay, And it's in, what you see is, what's interesting is um, the word there, uh, is actually uh, for, uh, if, you go to the, if you go to the next page, um, this, this word here is actually this word for um, fig leaves, sewed fig leaves together. It's this, it's, it's not a good covering. It's like a, uh, like a skimpy, you know, um, undergarments is what it, it basically is in Hebrew. Loincloths, okay? So inadequate clothing um, results from self-justification. Um, you cannot be covered. You are not covered. You will be exposed. Um, nakedness, your nakedness will be exposed. Um, so it's this sense of shame. Um, but so uh, that's the first thing. And then this had ripple effects into our relationships with ourselves. It's the first time humans experience shame. Sometimes shame is good to experience, and um, sometimes it's not good to experience shame. Um, and to be mocked is to experience shame. Um, and to, uh, whenever someone criticizes you, that's, and, and it's, it's unjustified, that's shame that you can feel um, whenever you're mocked. And so that's what we have going on here. So uh, it plays out, so there's this brokenness, it plays out in many ways. Um, and the woman experiences uh, pain when she's giving birth now. Man is created to work in the garden before the fall, but frustration entered into work after the fall. So your work is filled with anxiety. You know, even schoolwork can be, you know, unhealthy effects of perfectionism. Um, that all flows out of, there's this brokenness with ourselves. Our relationship with ourselves is broken, and we see that play out here. 
sense of shame. So there's this poverty of being. There's this poverty of being is, is what we have. That, um, and um, I love this. A church father said this, that um, apart from Christ, we oscillate between pride and despair. That's what humans do. It's just continually going back and forth, pride and despair. Either we have God complexes or we have low self-esteem. And I, I often feel that way about my own self. Um, apart from Christ, that's exactly what I do. And I am guarantee I do it more than you. Um, and I've, since I'm older, I've had more time to perfect that, get better at sinning. Um, and so we have that. And then third, we, our relationship with other human beings is broken. Man and woman blame each other. Um, so the woman, verse 16, woman is going to be frustrated with her relationships within the home. And so um, there's this poverty of community. So now there's this self-centeredness or, and there's this exploitation that we see in the world. And I, I'm trying to build a case that um, the Christian story of the way things are in the world makes the most sense of reality in a world that does not make sense a lot of times. Um, this explains, um, this gives you um, a story, it calls you into, and it, it helps us make sense of the world as we see it. Um, so poverty of community, but also our relationship with the rest of creation is, is, is distorted. Um, so man will have to struggle to eat now. Even though there was abundance, there's now a lack of abundance, and man would struggle with frustration. The ground is cursed brings forth thorns and thistles. Um, so there's this poverty, what you call a poverty of stewardship. I love this phrase that, so there's this loss of sense of purpose in life and people either oscillate between being workaholics or laziness um, now. And, and knowing most of you guys, um, even though you might feel lazy a lot of times, I know you know what it's like to struggle with that. I, I do too. With workaholism, finding your identity in what you do. So, um, this world that we're meant to manage, to understand, to subdue, um, back in Genesis 1, it explains that. Um, we experience this poverty of stewardship. So these are all ripple effects that flew, flow out of this broken relationship. So the earthquake, the relational earthquake happened, these are the aftershocks. So you can understand those other ones, and you can't get those right. We long for a perfect world. Our community does. Um, you can't get those right unless you get the first, um, the first earthquake relationship issue dealt with. If if you if it, with that's where everything flows out of. That's the headwaters. That is the headwaters. We've got to get that one right first. Um, so how is that relationship restored? I want to show you something pretty cool. Um, go to the next one. So the end of so remember you see some pretty brutal honesty. Um, remember, compassion and honesty um, are, are, really the, are really the two tracks that love runs on um, and uh, relationships run on. And you see honesty um, and God giving kind of blessings, curses here for, for, their, for their decisions, for what they wanted to do to try to find life, to try to build a create perfect world beside them. Um, they wanted to represent themselves, basically. And then let's look at this. So, but then we, it kind of ends with some signs of life. Um, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Um, Eve has a sense of, it, it means um, a life giver. Life giver. And so there's, there, there is some kind of flicker of hope, but even more so, verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed him. That word garments is not like that word that we pointed out earlier that means loincloths, you know, strode together, fig leaves. 
Um, these are actually adequate. This is full covering. These, it, it's this word for tunic. So God actually provides. Now think about what they just did. Um, and think about the way that they just treated God in this narrative. Now, we oftentimes pass along, away, we pass through that, and we're just like, okay, okay, where are we going here? Um, but that's incredibly important. Look at the way the, that God responded, responded by pursuing their hearts. He's pursuing them even after what they've done to him. Um, they, they did not deserve clothing. They did not deserve tunics um, at all from him. But he made garments of skin for his wife, and, and they clothed him. And this covering involves killing an animal, which was um, a sacrifice for salvation for Israel. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you, you might have learned that before. Um, so isn't that interesting? It kind of entailed some kind of sacrifice for animal. And that looks forward to the suffering sacrifice of the Messiah who, the, who, like the animal, atoned for the sins of Israel. So it kind of prefigures the Messiah who would come. And so Isaiah 33, 17, I love this. Our eyes will see the, the king in his beauty. There was this expectation um, that he would come. And, uh, and so I want to read to you this quote from C.S. Lewis from the book Mere Christianity. Um, great, great book, old book. Um, worth reading if you haven't read it. He said this um, in, in speaking about this one. He said he, he, he was talking about Jesus and um, as Messiah. And he said, we must think of the sun always, so to speak, streaming from the Father like light from a lamp or heat from a fire or thoughts from a mind. He is the self-expression of the Father, what the Father has to say. And there was never a time when he wasn't saying it. Um, so as we said earlier, being in the presence of God is still the purest of human pleasures but the presence is no longer confined to the garden. But experiencing um, God's presence now is experiencing Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that's the purest of human pleasures that you can experience in life. And so um, Jesus' sacrifice permanently, it per perfectly um, reconciles, makes right sinners um, to God. I want to read this verse from Romans 5, um, before you go to bed tonight, you should read all of this chapter because it really will kind of help make the connection between the first representative, Adam, who we can choose to have as our representative. You can Basically, the scriptures invite us to say, okay, you can have Adam as your representative or you can have Jesus as your representative. Um, but it says this, it says, uh, verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. There's this, um, going back, I want to read a couple of verses from 5, 8, and 9. But God shows his own love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Still, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? There's a church father, St. Augustine, from back in the 5th century, and he was reflecting on this passage, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and he said something pretty provocative. He said this, he said, there's a real sense in which even when God hated us, he still loved us. God, God loves us with a furious love whenever we don't deserve his love. 
He clothes us with adequate garments. He gives us what we need for life, eternal life. And that's, and that's what this is actually trying to get us to look towards that we see with clarity in the scripture. Um, so God was kind of this thick darkness in, in, in the, in the um, Old Testament. And I heard this illustration when I was in college. I remember, I think it's, it's really fitting. It's, it's kind of like the Old Testament is like whenever you walk into a room and the lights are off, you know, you can kind of feel where chairs are. You can feel where the podium is. You can feel some furniture, but you don't really see. But then um, when Christ came on the scene, it was like the light switch flipped on. And you could, you could see God um, as this relational man. Um, he, was, he was real. He blew his nose just like we do. He was he was realest human being that's ever lived. Um, so Jesus is the last Adam um, because through his sacrificial death and his resurrection, he reverses the effects of the, what the first Adam did. And so as we're united into this story, the story of redemption is really exciting to me because what um, calling really means, by the way, um, God invites you to actually push back the effects of the fall. Because it's what he's doing now. That's the, that's the story that he invites you into doing through your vocations. All your vocations, your calling, including your occupation. It's not your only calling, but it's one of them that you're going to be doing for the rest of your life, pushing back the effects of the fall in some way. Um, so there's this story uh, of, of a Roman uh, citizen, wealthy Roman citizen. And he had a son who broke his heart. And he also had a slave whom he came to admire and he came to respect because of that slave's um, deference and his commitment to the Roman citizen. And on his deathbed, the Roman decided to actually disinherit his son and leave everything that he had to his slave. His slave was named Marcellus. So he drew up the papers. He called in his son to tell him what he had done. And he said, son, I'm deeding everything that I have to the slave Marcellus. However, I'm going to let you choose one thing from my estate for you to keep for yourself. What do you think that that son said or should have said? I'll take Marcellus. That's exactly what he said. Why? Because when you get Marcellus, you get everything. Same way, whenever you have Jesus, you have everything. You lack no good thing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.20-21, um, it's one of my favorite passages right now, and it says this, all things are yours. All things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. That's the gospel. What would happen if you really believed that? What if you experienced the kind of freedom and the liberation that would really come from believing that all things are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God? Go meditate on that. 1 Corinthians 3, start back, read that whole chapter, but especially 19, 20, 21. What would happen? I don't know where you are tonight, what you are really struggling with in your heart. I'll tell you, if you are Christ, you have everything. You have everything. That's so exciting. So exciting. So, finally, this leaves us the question, the first question that God asked the humanity in the Bible was, where are you? I think this is a really, um, as we think about how to image God in relationships, if you want to image God, um, you'll be the kind of person who sits down with somebody, and you'll say, where are you? Maybe you won't use those kind of words because it could seem kind of awkward or something. Um, but anybody like, what? Huh? Um, here? Uh, you know, um, but 
that's the that's they see that's the heart. You, you're you're basically asking, do you know where your heart is? Do you think you can find it? And you want to know where their heart is now. Again, it's so easy to live in the present. It's so easy to be um, in slavery to the past, things that have happened to you. And some of you have been sinned against, and there there's no excuse for that. I'm not saying I'm not trying to minimize that. I'm not trying to minimize all the important questions if you're a senior and you're like just trying to figure out what you're going to be doing next year, the next step. But more important than what God is saying, where are you? I'm, I'm so interested in, in where you are right now. And so what it really means to image God is, is to say, hey, where are you now? And it just basically means that you are very present with someone that um, you you, you want to know, you know, God was wanting to know, where's your heart? Don't hide from me. You know, just be real with me. Um, if you're struggling with him, tell him that. If he seems distant, tell him. And a lot of times we ask the question, um, where are you, God? But it's funny, we, won't, we don't really allow God to ask us the same question. And I would say that maybe we need to, we need to let him ask us that question first. He's a, he's a great initiator in Scripture. He's always initiating. He's always pursuing. And we need to let him pursue our hearts first and say, okay, God, I'm going to ask you where you are. And I think, again, that can be an okay question to ask. But first, I'm going to really wrestle with and let you ask me that question first. Where? Let him say, where are you? And, and go to him. Tell him what you, where you are, what you're struggling with. He wants to push back the effects of the fall in your own life as well as in the cosmos. Um, pretty incredible. Adam gave this answer that was basically an answer of fear. Um, and instead of intimacy, oftentimes we're afraid. And um, we don't open up to other people, much less God. But his answer should have been this. I'm with you here and now. This garden is the place where I glorify you and I enjoy you always. And, and remember this, in closing, that God's response to Adam's failure was not try harder, wasn't get your act together. It was, it was I'm going to send my son who's going to be present with you. He's going to go through what, you've been, what, what you are going through. And he's going to redeem this world. He's going to make it right. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much um, just for this time with everybody here. And um, Lord, you, you, you're looking into every heart, I know. And I know that you are asking the question, where are you? Um, to each person here. And I, I pray that we would really wrestle with what this means for us as we relate to you. Father, I pray that we would grasp the beauty um, and we would actually have experienced faithful feelings, Lord, of, 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 of um, we would feel the way you want us to feel about this world. We would weep whenever we see the devastation, the effects of the fall. But yet that wouldn't be the rest of the story. We would be filled with profound hope that you are making this world right, that, um, Lord, renewal doesn't come through people, but it comes through a person. And, uh, Father, I pray that, that we would look to you as our transformer, Lord, pray that you would, you would be our representative. Each, every person here tonight, I pray that, that they would decide, Lord, just to make you their representative instead of Adam, Lord. And they would experience the abundant life, the shalom that, that only you bring in life. And may that just ripple into every one of our relationships. 
And Father, I just thank you for this time. Forgive me of my sins, for they're many. And I pray that we would be Christ in you only. In Jesus' name, amen.